And Father, this is our desire, that your word would have its effect in our hearts, in our minds, that it would transform us. We know that your word has the power to do that. And we'd ask, Lord, that you would make it alive to us, not something that is dusty and covered over and forgotten. I thank you for Paul and the ministry that he had and how he stood up for what the true gospel was. I pray that you would give us his same fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit inside, that we would not shy away from difficult times when it comes to scripture or practices in the church. But I had asked that you would give us wisdom that we may correct and instruct with gentleness and respect. In Jesus' name, amen. In business, there is something known as a hostile takeover. Uh, This is an acquisition of a target company by another company against the will of the management of the target company. This can be done by offering to buy stock of the target company at or at above the market price. The stockholders are wooed. They are enticed to sell their stock and become loyal to the acquiring company. Problems are pointed out to the current current stockholders that they need fixing inside the company. Uh, Secret meetings take place in the absence of the current management. You know, they get together, they have lunch, let's have lunch, let's talk about this. And then enticements are offered and promises are made. Power to make changes would seem to be in the hands of the acquiring company once they get enough stock. Power then defers back to that company who is taking over the target company. Now, in church, there's also something known as a hostile takeover. The current leadership is targeted. Perceived problems, both stylistic and doctrinally, are pointed out to the body. Secret meetings take place, enticements are offered, and promises are made. Once there's enough believers in the church that disagree with the current leadership, there is an attempt to purge that leadership and install new leaders and a new pastor. Imagine that. The Apostle Paul was fighting against this type of hostile takeover. Paul was astonished that the Galatians had so quickly abandoned the true gospel and they had traded the gospel of grace for the gospel of works. And so these people were coming in to take over, to change the doctrine, to change the practice inside the church. Now this happened because of these Judaizers whom we've already talked about and they accused Paul of at least three things, teaching a gospel made up by men. Secondly, they accused Paul of not being zealous for Judaism. And third, they didn't have, uh, that Paul didn't have enough experience to be trusted. After all these Judaizers, they had lots of experience. And we know that Paul spent three years in Damascus after making a quick trip to Arabia. And after that, he met with the apostle Peter and stayed for 15 days. Now, after that, it picks it up in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, excuse me here. It says, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those 
who seemed, <clears throat> excuse me, to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. <clears throat> now, it's interesting who Paul says he is talking to, those who seemed to be leaders. Now, keep that in mind for a second. Who would seem to be a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Now, Paul consulted with the apostles, and this is probably recorded in Acts chapter 9. There's a total of five times that Paul and the scriptures went back to Jerusalem. And not that he would change his mind, but after all that he had done with the gospel, it could be adversely uh, affected if the apostles in Jerusalem said, no, you have to be circumcised. Because remember, Paul received the gospel directly from Jesus Christ himself or himself once someone receives Christ into their lives an attempt to avoid sin develops now we understand that once you get saved you have this thing called guilt now guilt is good uh, if we suppress the guilt that's not good if we sin so much where we don't experience the guilt that's not good either if God says something is wrong the Holy Spirit lives in us he bears testimony to the word of God that tells us what we should do and what we should not do. Now, there might be certain behaviors <clears throat> that other leaders might try to impose in any given church. These are not necessarily sinful, but in an effort to avoid sin, they might encourage or even demand certain behaviors. I was listening to a little video this morning of a black pastor in a black church is somewhere back east. I think it was in 2007. He did a great job. He turned to Deuteronomy and he was addressing this idea that women are not supposed to wear pants. And in Deuteronomy, it says that women are not to be found in the attire of a man and vice versa. The man is not to be found wearing what a woman would wear. And there, he was talking about pastors that come along and say, women ought not to wear pants. Well, pants were invented about 500 years ago. If you would have gone back to the time of Christ, even men were wearing dresses, so to speak. They didn't have the pants. And then he was making the point that in the rest of the chapter, in Deuteronomy, down he said in verse 11, there's also this commandment that says you're not to wear any type of garment with mixed fibers in it. Like you're not supposed to mix wool with linen or linen with cotton. And for us, it'd be polyester or Dacron or whatever it might be. You're not supposed to mix those together because after they are washed, they shrink and they tear and they have all kinds of problems. And he was making the point that if the pastors who go around telling women that they ought not to uh, wear pants, well, they might go to hell for that. These pastors are saying, well, the same pastors and their wives are wearing garments that have mixed wool and linen and cotton all together. And so they're ended up pointing at their own wives for that. And this is a behavior. And by the way, my grandmother practiced this. 
I remember she never wore pants. She only wore a dress because of the scripture in Deuteronomy. Now, this is an issue. It is not a commandment that women can't wear pants. They can wear pants if they want to. But this is one of the behaviors that I am talking about. Now, what type of other things might a pastor, a minister of the gospel, impose as a restriction? Saying something that you need to follow, this will, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be saved, but it is really the holy thing to do. I've expressed to you before that uh, people have come to me and they said they wanted me to wear a tie. And uh, sometimes I wear a tie, sometimes I don't. It doesn't matter to me. Nowhere in scripture does it say thou shalt wear a tie on Sunday morning. There are some other things like your diet or your drink, things that you consume like no caffeine, alcohol, or meat. Uh, And the Mormons and the Seventh-day Adventists, they advocate for this. They have no, uh, what they would call hot drinks, the tea or the coffee, because the caffeine would be bad for you. Or some pastors might say, you need to attend church at least two or three times uh, per week, or you need to go to the Bible study, and if you do that, then you're more holy Uh, Well, you're really not more holy. You probably realize that you're more of a sinner every time you go uh, to one of these functions. Or how about watching movies or listening to rock and roll? I don't know about you, but I have an eclectic flavor for all kinds of music. Uh, I remember as a child going to the symphony because we got free tickets in fourth grade. I went with Mrs. Mayo and we had to wear white shirts and I got a tremendous amount of enjoyment out of going to the symphony. But then, you know, I found out the Moody Blues were a good band and I liked them. Breathe deep, the gathering gloom, watch lights fade from every room, bedsitter people. Well, I won't continue with that. But But you get the idea. And even the Eagles, they had a lot of good music which is out there and I never really liked the Stones but you know in the past couple of years I've listened to the Stones and they have some rock and music you know it's okay I enjoy it but some pastors would say that rock and roll is of the devil and Elvis Presley was one of his henchmen you know the way that he would sing out there and jailhouse rock and it's some rock and stuff but some leaders would say you ought not to listen to that or watch movies either you ought to stay away from the movie theaters that used to be real big of course now we don't have to worry about it they're all closed down but what about working on sunday Uh, can you work on sunday now police work on sunday but there are other and i'm telling you this is everywhere on the internet that a christian ought not to work on sunday he ought to keep the sabbath now i don't know about you But I'm positive. Scripture says the Sabbath is Saturday. It is not Sunday. But they transfer it to Sunday. And they say there are severe... One website said there are severe consequences for not keeping the Sabbath. And look what happened to Israel because they did not keep the Sabbath. They list 20 different things and how they did not receive the blessing. That's not what it's about. Now, the Sabbath principle, you know, resting, I think that's a good idea. But if you can't rest, Sunday is a great day for a nap. I love naps, except when I wake up and I have a headache. I love the nap on Saturday. I used to fight it so much as a child, but now I can't wait to have one. Go and take a nap. But this idea of working on Sunday, some pastors would say you can't do that. Or what about this? No dancing. You know, shake a leg. 
I'm telling you, dancing, uh, I used to get so much enjoyment out of dancing when I discovered it. And I discovered it in middle school. And in middle school, they even voted me best dancer because I used to go out there and dance at every single dance. I only missed one dance in junior high. I just loved it. And then disco came and I was in my element at that time. But I would be condemned for dancing by some pastors who are out there. And, you know, we go to weddings and some people want to take video of me dancing. Like, the pastor's dancing. You know, it's like, oh, this is, oh, we could use this against them. Well, okay, use it against me. I know I'm a bad dancer, but hey, go ahead, take a shot. Or what about the dress code? You know, there's this dress code that might be instituted a suit and tie, an appropriate length of a dress, as well as restriction on makeup and jewelry, and that's just for the men. For the women, you know, you could have something that's completely different, but, and by the way, Scripture talks about the women in Peter and in Timothy and how they should dress modestly. And it's not saying that women can't wear any jewelry or they can't braid their hair. Because that's what those scriptures talk about. It just, what they used to do back then is they would weave gold in these fancy braids. Some of the, Patty and I, we've gotten into some of the BBC programs. Uh, And, you know, there's no cussing. Uh, We don't have to worry about being offended on some of these BBC programs that we watch. Uh, It's on, they're on Amazon Prime. Some of them, they're they're just great, you know. It's like television used to be, like Green Acres or Hogan's Heroes or something like that. We watch it. Wow, it's wonderful. It's refreshing to see something that you're not going to be offended by. And in some of these programs, some of these hoity-toity women that are back from that uh, um, Elizabethan age, they would doil up their hair. I mean braids and curls and everything else and they'd put stuff in it and just going over and beyond that's not what makes a woman beautiful the thing that makes a woman beautiful is on the inside and that's what those scriptures are talking about it's not talking about installing a prohibition against jewelry and dresses and makeup and all of those things but these are some of the examples that a pastor might come up with in order or in or leadership in the church in order to get the people to think that they're being more holy uh, to be more reserved uh, stoicism is the way where they're proper and hands are folded i don't know about you but i like to go out and have a, a raucous good fun sinless time not just go out and be stoic all the time now Uh, In these areas, I think the rule of thumb is balance and modesty are to be maintained in all areas of life. But to teach someone it is not spiritual if they engage in these behaviors is an error. And this is what the Judaizers were teaching. They were teaching in order not just to be holy, you had to practice the Old Testament laws and customs. But even some would say to be saved, you had to practice these things. And Paul was very much against this, as well as the other Old Testament practices that the Jews were required to follow. And so this is where the tension really starts to develop inside the book of Acts. Now, because of this, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And Peter was the apostle to the Jews. We know this from Scripture. 
And when Paul had a disagreement about this, I've mentioned this before, he went, according to Acts chapter 15, to see the apostles in Jerusalem to have this issue addressed. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 19, they gave four things that they wanted the uh, Gentile Christians to follow. Just four things. And they said, you don't have to follow the rest of the law. And these four things, I'm going to read it to you here. It's verses 19 and 20 of Acts chapter 15. It says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to, number one, abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, number two, from meat of strangled animals, number three, and from blood. Now, with the exception of sexual immorality, the others are not sin. The others are extremely offensive to the Jew. For instance, the food sacrifice to idol. The idols were a symbol of evil for the Jews. And if you ate the meat of the animal that was sacrificed to the idol, and we went through this in 1 Corinthians, it became an offense to anybody who was a Jew. And, of course, we know, uh, and I'm going to read it to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. It says, Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. But since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So he's telling us, that abstaining from food polluted by idols, it's really just offensive to the Jews. And in most churches, you're going to have both Jews and Gentiles. So please just don't do this. And this is not for your own sake. This is for the sake of those whose consciences are weak. This is repeated in Romans chapter 14. In verse 1, it says, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allow him allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So the food that is polluted by idols, they're supposed to refrain from eating in the presence of other Jews or the Jews who were fellow believers. Also, meat of strangled animals, that was because an animal who is strangled does not have the blood drained from it. And the blood, eating of the blood, was prohibited by the Jews under the Old Testament covenant because the life is in the blood and there was a prohibition against that and from eating blood itself. Of course, I talked to you last week that if you go over to Ireland, you can have blood sausage. I remember Patty and I walking into a place over in Ireland and getting some breakfast. It was early in the morning before we were going to go out and do our work. And they had this <clears throat> like a, a little burner area where the food was underneath. It was more like a buffet. You could pick what you wanted. And they had over easy eggs that were set to go there. They had sausage and, and they had... Um, uh, potato, potatoes. They had those over there, and and then they had the blood sausage, and it didn't look like it had been uh, there recently. It looked like it had been there for a long time, and 
We didn't grab any of that, but uh, they have it right there over in Ireland. It's, it's one of the things that they have normally for breakfast. And so uh, with this idea of not following through with those four types of behaviors, that was mostly for the sake of others. But the sexual immorality, of course, we know that that is a sin. And if those who practice it continue doing so and think it is okay, they are deceived, they're not saved, and they're not going to heaven. And that's pretty straightforward in Scripture. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and Galatians chapter 5 tells us that. Now, concerning the days of the week as well, you know, the Christians talk about uh, Sunday, or some Christians say that you need to not work on Sunday. Uh, in this particular passage in Romans 14, again, verse 5, it says, One man considers one day more sacred than another, and another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And what he's saying here is some people consider Saturday the holy day, and then Sunday a holy day too. If you're a Jew and you wanted to do something on Saturday, that would be good. If you're a Christian, you need to follow the same Sabbath rules and not do work on that Sabbath. And Paul's telling us through this passage in Romans 14 verse 5 that no, it doesn't make a difference because one man might consider every single day of the week just as holy as what they would consider to be the Sabbath, whether it's Saturday or Sunday. Now, thank the good Lord that we are not under this Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was onerous. It would be like putting a large hundred pound backpack on you and expect you to carry it around all the time all the things that you could do or could not do the ceremonial things that the jews were required to follow and by the way they they had the old testament law when they referred to the law they referred to the five books of moses <clears throat> but there was a commentary that they uh, that was first oral and then they would add to it uh, as the centuries would go by and it was called the mishnah and in the Mishnah, there were several things that you were supposed to do and not do. And Jesus was condemned and his disciples for like not washing their hands properly. If you go to Israel, <clears throat> um, off to the side of the Western Wall, there's a bathroom there and they have these cups and pitchers so you can wash your hands the way that they want you to wash your hands. Uh, if you go to the Western Wall, you're supposed to wear a yarmulke on top of your head. If you don't have one, they give you something that looks like a French fry bucket little thing, and they put that on your head, and they say you have to wear that. And, and so there were all these requirements that they had to do. Uh, I was even listening to a Messianic rabbi uh, the other day, and he had still the curls on the sides of his head because he, he came from Judaism, he became a Christian, but he wears the curls. I don't know if you've seen that. Some of the Hasidic Jews have that, and the devout Jews, they wear that. If you go up to College Avenue, uh, there's a synagogue up there, and if you go there on the Sabbath, you'll see them walking down the street, and they have the curls, and they have the prayer tassels that hang uh, underneath their shirt and you could see them hanging out and it was just certain behaviors and certain things that they were required to do well today what do the jews do well they still follow these same things these same practices but there is something called um i'm not going to pronounce this right melakot i think is what it's called uh if you pronounce it in english it'd be melakot but it's melakot and i can't quite get the <laughs> in there that the Jews uh, get in there but they and these things are prohibitions 
on the Sabbath. Current day prohibitions that you are not allowed to participate in. Otherwise, you'll be breaking the Sabbath. And that's a whole nother thing. But here's the list. I'm going to read to you the list. Are you ready? These things you cannot do on the Sabbath. Carrying, burning, extinguishing. Your house is on fire? Don't touch it. Finishing, writing, erasing. If you write something, you cannot erase it. Cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combining, spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, warping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, or marking. Now that tanning, I don't know if it's tanning a hide or tanning in a tanning bed, but you, you cannot do these 39 things for those who are Orthodox Jews. They don't believe in the Messiah. They don't believe in Jesus Christ. They are Orthodox in their Jewish faith. Now, that's not all. There are more things which are added to these 39. Now, I'm going to read this to you. Uh, There's several of them here. And these are also prohibitions. These are man-made prohibitions. Nowhere listed in the scripture. They taught that you should not look in a mirror on the Sabbath because you might be tempted to pluck out a gray hair, and that would be reaping. They said that you could only eat an egg which had been laid on the Sabbath if you killed the chicken for Sabbath breaking. A donkey could be led out of its stable on the Sabbath, but the harness and saddle had to be in place on him the day before. An egg could not be boiled on the Sabbath either by normal means or by putting it near a hot kettle or by wrapping it in a hot cloth or by putting it in the hot sand outside. To think of these things, it's just beyond me. If the lights were on when the Sabbath came, Sabbath begins at sundown, you could not blow them out if you had a candle uh, or a lamp. If they had been lit, if they had not been lit in time, then you could not light them. So you have to be in the dark all through the night on the Sabbath. It was unlawful to move the furniture on the Sabbath. There was an exception to this. In that, you were allowed to move a ladder on the Sabbath, but you could only move it four steps. It was unlawful to wear any jewelry or ornament on the Sabbath since it might be construed as carrying a burden. It was not permitted to wear false teeth on the Sabbath. That must have been a hit in the synagogue services, I'm sure. Uh, You were not allowed to eat radishes on the Sabbath, but you were warned against dipping them into salt because you might leave them in the salt too long and pickle them. And this was considered to be Sabbath breaking. The Pharisees actually had discussions on how long it took to pickle a radish. If a woman got mud on her dress, she was to wait until it dried and then she was permitted to crumble the dress in her hand one time and crush it and then shake it out once. If that did not do the trick, then she had to wear it. It was fine. It was fine to spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but you could not spit on the ground because that made mud 
and mud was mortar, and that was work. Now, these are all things that you cannot do as an Orthodox Jew if you follow the Pharisaic type of instruction that is out there. These are things that pastors could come up with. Don't do this on the Sabbath. Act this way. Don't listen to that music. Don't go see that movie. All of these things. Now, this is what the Judaizers were doing. Now, if you were a believer in Christ and you were breaking these and you didn't follow them, you would be breaking the Sabbath if these things were done on the Sabbath. Do you know what the penalty for breaking the Sabbath is? Let me read it to you. Exodus 31.15 For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath must be put to death. So if you break the Sabbath, you must be put to death. I'm surprised anybody is living in the Jewish synagogues. Because if you read and you took the scripture, literally, you cannot break the Sabbath. It is the death penalty for breaking the Sabbath. And, you know, we might look at this as like, well, that's ridiculous. And they even look at it as, well, that's ridiculous. We're not going to kill somebody for doing something on the Sabbath. Uh, there was one story that I read of a guy, he was uh, a Jewish gentleman, he was jumping on a trampoline on the Sabbath. And he jumped until he tired out, and then he just fell down and he laid there, and pretty soon his kids came up on it, and they just laid up there. He wouldn't have been able to jump on the trampoline because that would have been work. And imagine all the things that you would miss if you followed the Old Testament law. And believe me, it was onerous. When I've been to Israel... In Jerusalem specifically, uh, I stayed in a hotel that was close enough to the Western Wall and nobody drove. People started walking at sundown towards the Western Wall and they're very devout uh, individuals doing that. And they would close off the neighborhoods and nobody could drive in the neighborhoods. And everybody in the hotel, they came down to the the foyer area which was quite large and they would play family games which you know i thought was great the the jewish families would come down they had their children there and they would just spend the time talking with with each other and playing some board games and things like that and that's wonderful to take that time of rest family time i think is just indispensable in our day and age but sometimes we get um, taken aback and during that time that I went, I didn't have a, cell, a, a smartphone, you know, so we're looking for things to do too. And you read the scriptures or you read the newspaper, <clears throat> but you can't erase anything. If you're writing, you know, that might be offensive and the hotel elevators go up and down without you doing anything whatsoever. And the lights turn on when you go into a room and also that no work will be created. And there are Christians that say, well, you need to keep the Sabbath. My question to them would be, if you're going to follow the Old Testament law and worship on Saturday because that's the Sabbath, if somebody breaks it, are you going to kill them? And that's a serious matter. And the answer obviously is no. Well, why not? If you're going to follow the Old Testament law, why not? And I don't believe that in Paul's day, the Christians who were starting to observe the Old Testament, that they were in danger of being killed if they didn't. But I would again say, well, why not? Because God's word is true. It stands. There's no changes to it except for the covenant changes. If you want to follow the Old Testament law, you follow the Old Testament law, but it doesn't make you righteous whatsoever. So in referring to this law in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18, 
The former regulation is set aside, and it's referring to that ceremonial law in the Old Testament, because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, but a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And so the law doesn't cause us to draw near to God. The law, all it does is condemn us for not following through with it. And the point of the law was, once you felt condemned, you turn to God and you say, God, I... I, I can't fulfill it. I can't follow it. And that's where God's grace would come in. And you would have faith that God would declare you righteous in the Old Testament, just like the New Testament. The same thing applied. But he put this in place just to make sure they understood that the Messiah was coming and all the sacrificial system pointed to that Messiah. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations and that again was the law that was against us and that stood opposed to us he took it away nailing it to the cross in galatians 5 1 which we will get to it says it is for freedom that christ has set us free stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery referring to the old testament law So the Old Testament, it was like putting a huge yoke on your neck, the thing that held the cattle together when plowing was going on, or and they used that to strap it to the plow. And it was hard. It was difficult. Now, I've been backpacking up in the high Sierra, and usually a a pack for an adult weighs about 50 pounds. And you're going from 6,000 feet up to about uh, 10,000 feet and going up these switchbacks. It's not an easy thing to do. Uh, I, I used to tell the high schoolers that we'd take up there that you could die doing this. And I wasn't joking. I said, you could die, you could fall over, you could go down a cliff, all of these things could happen to you. And it's not going to be fun while you're doing it in the middle of it. But when you get all done and the things that you've seen, the things that you experience, it's going to be wonderful. But that burden was terrible to carry and then it starts on your shoulders to wear and tear and then your back feels and you it feels bad and you can't wait to get that burden off you that's what the law is like you had to carry that thing around i used to read a version of pilgrim's progress to my children when they were younger and it was an illustrated book lots of pictures in it and christian who was the one who got saved he went to the cross but he had this burden on his back that was just the size almost of a Volkswagen that he was carrying around on his back and when he went to the cross it just fell off and that is the law the law is taken away from us it's written code it's regulations it stood opposed to us and christ got rid of it now going back to verse six of chapter two He goes on to say, as for those who seem to be important, now here it is again, seem to be, who are those who seem to be important? Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearances. Those men added nothing to my message. Who are those men? He's speaking against somebody, but who is it exactly? Is it from the temple Are they talking against some of the chief priests of the temple who might have given letters or something like that? Who is it exactly that he's uh, talking about? Well, the wording isn't here so delicate. And you still have to ask the question, well, why why is he talking about these people? Now, I would submit to you that Paul is not talking about the Judaizers. 
And that would be the first default position you'd go to. The answer of who he's talking about is in verse 7. It says, On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, verse 8 here, actually it's verse 9, For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John. Those are the people he's talking about. If you go back up to verse 6, he goes, and for those who seemed to be important. Now, I don't know about you. What's your opinion of Peter, James, and John? Are they important for the work of the church? Yeah, I think they're right up there. They're right under Christ. But what does Paul say? They added nothing to my gospel. Is there a schism that's going on here? He's talking about Peter, James, and John. They added nothing to my gospel. Why did he say that? Because he got the gospel directly from Jesus Christ. He didn't get it from these guys. Who are the Judaizers purporting uh, to talk about as their superiors that they got letters from? Who did they get letters from when they went to these other churches? Was it from the temple? Was it from the chief priest? No. It was probably, and you can infer this from the scripture, the one who infers is the one who reads. The one who implies is the one who tells you. We can infer from the scripture that it was Peter, James, and John that gave the Judaizers the letters. Who were they ministering to? They were ministering to Jews. They were not ministering to Gentiles. Paul was the apostle to the Gentile. It seems to be there is a problem here in the book of Galatians where Paul is disagreeing with Peter, James, and John. But he rectifies that. He changes it around, or not changes it, but he adds some insight. Uh, And he does say in verse 9, James, Peter, and John, those reputed... Now, why would he say reputed? Reputed means to believe to be, considered to be, supposedly the leaders. Reputed to be the pillars gave me and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, when they recognized the grace given to me. So they gave their seal of approval to Paul, even though Paul was saying, they've added nothing to my gospel. Who are these men? They seem to be important. They seem to be reputed, or those reputed to be pillars in the church. And he goes on to say, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So you see there was this disagreement kind of that was in there because the Judaizers, it can be inferred, they came from Peter, James, and John. They got saved. They were practicing the Old Testament law as well as believing in Jesus Christ. And because of that, the scripture tells us, we know, even Paul, to the Jew, he became a Jew to win some Jews. And to the Gentile, he became like the Gentiles, to win the Gentiles. So it wouldn't be abnormal for Peter, James, and John to follow through with the practices of Judaism in order to win the Jews. This is not strange, but Paul is making a distinction here that you don't have to do it to be saved. The Judaizers were probably misunderstanding that you had to do all this in order to be saved. So in essence, what Paul was saying is even though you may be appealing to the authority of the apostles in Jerusalem for your doctrine and practice, they were the very individuals who sent him away with a blessing. So they had to rectify this in their mind. It thus 
came Acts chapter 15, where Paul goes, okay, I'm going to deal with this once and for all. We're going back to Jerusalem, and we're going to get this thing straightened out. You Judaizers who think you have to be circumcised in order to be saved, it is not true, which we will find out as we continue. Now, verse 11, it says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him face or to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong So he's continuing this little diatribe here where he's saying, you know, Peter, James, and John, good guys, but they're not perfect either, just like Paul would admit he was not. Uh, Verse 12 goes on, before certain men came from James, who were the ones that came from James? Probably Judaizers. It can be inferred from the scripture here. He used to eat with Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that their hypocrisy, by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So say, for instance, well, say, say we were all Catholics. And there was a cardinal under the Pope that came, if this was a Catholic church, to the Catholic church and says, I have a letter from the Pope, gives me authority to do what I need to do here. And then there's the pastor that's here in the church or the priest that's here in the church. And then he has to submit to the cardinal. Why? Because of fear. If you don't do what they say, you're going to be in trouble. And they're going to probably yank you out of the priesthood and send you somewhere else and... um, make you live in Siberia and minister up there, something like that. Well, here is Peter. Peter is a, quote, pillar in the church. But who spoke in Acts chapter 15 for the church in Jerusalem? It was James. James was the Lord's brother. Now, if Peter went to James and said, look, James, you totally wrong in this these guys you have sent or maybe you're not wrong but these guys have misconstrued what's going on and they could start going back and forth now i'm talking kind of fleshly here peter would look at james and go he's the lord's brother what you don't want me to do here you know he he's like right next to the pope so to speak but he's right next to christ he grew up with him he knows everything about him so he was kind of intimidated i'm sure by these judaizers who came from james that probably had letters so he goes okay you know i guess i won't eat with the gentiles anymore but he knew this was wrong because if you go back to acts chapter 10 and 11 that is where he had this vision where the sheet came down from heaven and it had all kinds of unclean animals on it and it happened to him three times and the Lord told him in this vision take up and eat and he goes far be it from me Lord I would never eat anything unclean and, and so it took back up to heaven it came back down took back up three times it did this and as a result of this <clears throat> he was able to go minister to Cornelius Cornelius was given uh, instruction by God to send for Peter now Peter went to see Cornelius And he was a centurion, and he was over the Italian regiment. He was a very powerful man, and Peter gave him the gospel. Once he gave him the gospel, and he even ate with him, it says in chapter 11, verse 1, he ate with them. The Judaizers came along, what are you doing eating with these Gentiles? He goes, hey, I had this vision. God told me, don't call anything unclean that he is called clean, and so I'm supposed to go to these guys. And I'm supposed to talk to them. He goes, don't look at me. Oh, hey, this is God. You took it. Look at God. He's the one that told me. And so he did this. But later on, 
He started listening to them again, saying, you have to separate yourselves from the Gentiles. Unless they're following the law of Moses, they cannot be saved and it will make you unclean. Now, again, um, as I've expressed before, when we went to Israel, uh, you go to the Western Wall there the evening or the afternoon prayers right before sunset. You would see all these young Jewish boys who are out there. And they would all be dressed in black pants and white shirts and they had their hats on and they would huddle like a football huddle and they would constantly be looking over their shoulder like this because they didn't want to touch any of the Gentiles. Who, it was a very crowded area. They didn't want to touch them before they went to the prayers at the Western Wall because that would make them unclean. And so they're following that today. That don't touch the Gentiles. Don't associate with them. If you want to be a devout Jew, they would make you unclean. If you touch them or especially if you had a meal with them and the food is not kosher, you have to have kosher food. I don't know if you've ever been to uh, D.Z. Aikens. D.Z. Aikens in La Mesa. Uh, it, it's a Jewish deli and it, it's good food there. Uh, it's wonderful and it's all kosher. It has been blessed by the rabbi. It's all good the way it's been prepared. And But if you go to a, another um, place to eat, like if you go for Japanese sushi, uh, not a good idea because that is not kosher. So see all these things that you have to follow through with if you're trying to follow the law. So you're getting the flavor for what is going on here uh, as far as Paul being upset by the Judaizers who were sent by those of James, Peter, and John who have the authority in the church in Jerusalem. They were the Jews, uh, ministering to the Jews, and they became or they remained as a Jew. But Paul was going to the Gentiles, and he became like a Gentile. And he makes the point previously that we already stated that Titus did not even have to be circumcised. You caught that at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs, to follow these Jewish customs? By the way, the word customs is not in the original text in the Greek. It says, really to live as the Jews do is what it really says there. And so he's saying, you are requiring these Gentiles to live as the Jews do. And Paul was so upset in front of everybody. I don't know how many people were there, but imagine this. Oh, you got the two power brokers. You got Paul and you got Peter. And who's going to win? The sock and bottom robots. You remember those? Push the little things down, had the little ring. It's an old toy that we used to play. That, that's what you had. You had these two guys just kind of going at it. And Paul, I'm sure, embarrassed Peter because Peter was listening to those who were sent by James and he is falling in line. Don't eat with the Gentile. And the Gentile has to follow the laws of Moses and proselytize into the Jewish faith, so to speak, but have Christ with you. Now, verse 15 goes on. We are, are we who are Jews by birth and not, quote, Gentile sinners. And that's probably what the Judaizers were saying about the Gentiles. Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law. Now imagine if in a Christian church, you don't follow these Sabbath regulations that some pastor impose. You say, those carnal Christians, they're not following through. They listen to music. Carnal Christians, you see how it works? It's just the Judaizers of today were the Judaizers of the Old Testament times. They just transferred it all the way up today. We have died, or Christ died for us so that we might be free in our faith and not constricted by all these rules 
and regulations. He goes on to say, So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ by and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. No one will be declared right in the eyes of God because of what they do. If they think that salvation is attained by that, they are completely wrong. That is not how we get salvation. Verse 17 says, If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what, is de- what I destroyed, referring to the law, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For though I, the law, or excuse me, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. That's kind of the definitive statement there. Do not follow the law thinking that it adds to your faith or salvation or righteousness or holiness. It doesn't. But if you want to go to a Jewish Seder, you have at it because it's kind of fun. I've been to one and we had good food and then they had the dancing. Uh, Oh, yeah, that dancing thing. (laughs) Jews, when they throw a party... They can party. I mean, you know, we, we're more stoic in our beliefs and practices, but those Jews, they go at it. And they, they put their arms around each other and they're going back and forth. Oh, it's just, it's a fantastic thing to see, especially, I believe, a, a completed Jew, a messianic Jew, one who believes in the Savior, the Mashiach, the Messiah. It's a wonderful thing to see that. And they are full of life. And, and the way that they're able to expand on the Old Testament, the, expound on it, and instruct us what it has to say, it's just phenomenal to be able to sit and listen to them. But just keep in mind, it adds nothing to our righteousness. It adds nothing to our standing in God if you decide to observe some of those things. You would just simply observe them as a way of looking back. So by way of application here, the Judaizers apparently, some were even sent with the blessing of Peter, James, and John, were making a move for a hostile takeover. They were teaching that Paul was not doing it right. They pointed out what they thought were the errors by Paul. They convinced many of the believers in the churches of Galatia, the area of Galatia up there. They had power and authority given to them that seemed legitimate, the letters that they had. And if it could have been said that these Judaizers, uh, it could have been said of them, um, now imagine positing it like this. Um, faster than a speeding demon, more powerful than a flock of sheep, able to leap over enemy strongholds in a single bound. They seem to be better. You know, that this is the better way you can accomplish more if you follow the Judaizers' way. And Paul was saying, no, no way, no how. Not on my watch. And they wanted the Gentile believers to become like the Jews and in their practices. And Paul rages against this because not only does it mean an additional burden to those who become new believers who are Gentiles, but 
it can take the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and it adulterates it. If I, uh, myself, before you, if I give you another gospel than other what is written in scripture, or if an angel does, remember what it says, may that person or that angel be condemned, or may they go to hell. That's how Paul was expressing it. He was just so adamant about it. Now, how do you determine if I'm giving you a false gospel? Well, Acts 17, verses 10 through 12. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Bereans were more of noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. That's how you examine if I'm giving you a false gospel. That's how you examine if I'm giving you some type of behavior that you ought to follow because it makes you more holy. You can say, no, Paul spoke against that. And why are you speaking for that particular behavior? And by the way, if it's not specifically listed in Scripture as being a prohibition, you have the freedom You have the freedom to participate. Now, for some, that is very scary. That type of freedom. You mean I can do anything I want? You know, Paul said that. Everything for me is permissible, but not everything is expedient. In other words, it's not good that you do everything, even though everything is available to you to do. And he's talking about these disputable matters. If you want to go out and dance, just do it with modesty and respect. And have fun. If you like swing, go ahead. Swing. If you like square dancing, go ahead. If you like modern dance, well, that's of the devil. Don't go that, down that one. But you, you, get, you get the idea. You can do whatever you want if it's not prohibited in Scripture. How, how does the uh, saying go? I don't have it in my notes here. I think it's uh, uh, William from Chichester. Um, in all things, in uh, you know what I'm gonna have to look it up. In all things, liberty. And um, sorry about that. I should have had it written down. It just came to my mind. But anyhow, in closing on this, we are to give liberty to all those who desire it, not impose restrictions on uh, what we think is proper and holy and good. Every man and woman will give an account of themselves to God, and then. Uh, Wrapping it up here, if those who would like to start a church on their own, wonderful, go. Go alone, but go and see what God does. You'll know if God's with you or not. How? Time will tell. You, you can uh, determine that uh, right up front. But what about those who come in and say, no, I got a better way. I, I want you to be aware. If anybody ever comes into this church and says, you know that pastor... I don't think he knows very much. It's probably true. I would admit to that right away. Well, yeah, I don't think he's a very good guy. Well, that's probably true too. I am a sinner saved by grace. Well, you know, he could do things a lot different. He could stomp on a demon on a single bound, maybe. But on any given day, this particular guy could stomp on 10 demons. Give him the chance. You hear somebody like that or they they want you to go have a secret meeting. Let's get together and talk about this, how we can change things. It's just not good. That's what the Judaizers were doing. We don't want to be like the Judaizers. Don't go in for the hostile takeover. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for how he instructed us and he let us know what was going on in his life, in the life in ministry. We thank you, Lord, that we can apprehend these things, make them our own. But we would pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom. As those who come into the church and go out, may we all have a spirit of fellowship that is bound together by your Holy Spirit. May we not fail to recognize error that wishes to creep in. And may we always stand against false gospels. We know that this is your will. And so, Father, we ask that you would empower us and bless the fellowship of the saints here at Calvary Chapel Lakeside. In Jesus' name, and everyone said...